Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our time uh, today gathered as your people. Uh, we thank you that we have been able to sing to you praises in thank you, in thanks for who you are and for all that you've done for us in Jesus. And uh, we pray now that as we come to hear you from your word, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would change us by it uh, for your glory. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading today is uh, in Judges, chapter 16, starting at verse 4. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him, so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as, easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then, with men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, All this time you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. He replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with a pin, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric and tightened it with a pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazirite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more, he has told me everything. 
So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Thanks. Let's pray together. Father, please take your word. Uh, write it onto our hearts. We pray that as we look at this story, you might give us minds that are able to understand it and hearts that are soft to receive it and wills that are ready to obey uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, or actually I think I might, uh, but there are times for me when you know, I know I've got to do something but you kind of feel like you're just dragging your heels so much. You get dragged into it, kicking and screaming, maybe metaphorically or you know, maybe literally if you're a young child. Even if you're an adult, maybe you get dragged kicking and screaming literally. Sometimes we can feel a little bit like uh, uh, this cat. This is sort of one of my favourite Christmas pictures. Uh, dashing through the... No. <laughs> Uh, sometimes you can feel a bit like that. Just imagine, you can sort of just imagine this cat's owners, can't you? Uh, coming up with this great idea for this, the great idea for this picture, trying to coax it uh, into the right position, and it has absolutely no enthusiasm for it. It's this classic image of, you know, the uh, the way cats actually rule humans rather than the other way around. You know, <laughs> uh, but sometimes it's you know silly things like this you get dragged into. Uh, other times it's more important, isn't it? It's sort of more serious things. And friends, we can even, can't we, we can even find ourselves being reluctant, dragging our heels, um, kicking and screaming in the Christian life, can't we, in, in following Jesus, in living um, the life that Jesus would have us live. Well, last week, if you were here, we looked at a very reluctant judge Uh, He was incredibly reluctant, this guy Gideon we looked at last week. He was reluctant to do what God wanted him to. He was sort of, maybe looked a little bit like this cat, probably not as extreme as that, but he was reluctant to do what God wanted him to do uh, because he was afraid. He was so fearful. He was afraid he he wouldn't be up to it. He was afraid he wasn't up to the huge task that God had set him and he was, at heart, he was actually afraid that God wasn't up to it either. And we saw last week, if you were here, how God just patiently, again and again, uh, how, how, how gracious he was to Gideon, giving him sign after sign, fueling his faith. We saw how Gideon was transformed at that moment where he bowed down and worshipped God uh, and sort of transformed to trusting at last, that it was God at work, not him, that God could do the impossible. He led uh, the Israelites to this great victory. That's what we looked at last week. And this week, we're looking at another reluctant uh, servant of God, another reluctant judge. 
Samson is a lot like Gideon in this, in this way. Uh, he's very reluctant to do what God wants him, but in another way, he's, he's totally opposite to Gideon, isn't he? He's opposite in so many ways. Um, he was reluctant, but it wasn't because he was afraid. He was reluctant to do what God had for him, not because he was scared of uh, whether he could do it or not. He knew his own strength. Uh, his problem was a deeper one and would uh, ultimately lead to his death. It was a far more serious one. Well, before we get to the Samson story, we're going to very quickly cover the ground between last week and this week, these uh, few chapters in the middle of Judges. Uh, right at the start of our look through Judges, we saw how God's people go through this cycle through the whole book. Uh, they forget about Yahweh, they go, their God, they uh, go after the gods of the nations around them, God punishes them, he gives them over to foreign rulers, they uh, are in great distress, they cry out to him and then he sends a judge to save them. And uh, each time it's a cycle, it sort of goes through the whole book, but we also saw that it wasn't just a sort of circular cycle, it's a spiral that just goes down and down and worse each time. And essentially, between Gideon last week and Samson this week, the story of Judges is of this spiral going down and down and down, getting tighter and more vicious and more tragic. Uh, Even Gideon himself, as we looked at last week, we didn't look at chapter 8, where Gideon himself is led into... He he, uh, Inadvertently, he leads the Israelites into idol worship. He kind of sets up this thing that becomes a real snare to him. Uh, then, we, then you read the story about his son called Abimelech. Uh, Abimelech's a really nasty character. He kills 70 of his brothers to set himself up as king over Israel. And, you know, it's just got um, disaster written all over it, and that's how it ends. It ends very badly. Uh, just before we get to Samson, there's this absolutely tragic story of a judge named Jephthah who makes a, a, just a foolish vow he didn't need to make and ends up in tragedy, uh, and his story ends with the two Israelite tribes at war with each other. So you can see how this sort of neat cycle at the start is just getting worse and worse and worse. It's not only now God's people who are being attacked by the nations around them, they're actually descending into chaos themselves. They're fighting each other by the time we get to Samson. And then we get, come to the last judge, Samson, uh, he is, I think, the most sort of intriguing, the most flawed of all the judges. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, we're going to skim through his story and concentrate on chapter 16, what we read out. Uh, this time in chapter, six, in chapter 13, at the start of Samson's story, uh, the Israelites again, where we read, they again turn to the idols uh, of the nations around them. They turn... From Yahweh, from the Lord to the idols, and they're enslaved by the Philistines for 40 years. But this time, there's something different. This is sort of another sign that the cycle is breaking, the spiral's just getting worse and worse. Uh, if, you were, if you were able to read through this story in home group this week, maybe you picked this up. There's something different this time. If you've read it, you, you might have noticed that. Uh, this time, there's no cry out to the Lord from God's people. There's, uh, the, they are sold into the hands of the Philistines. Uh, they, they, there's no cry out to the Lord. It's as if this Philistine rule was so oppressive 
that this cycle has gone on and on and on, that the Israelites are in such despair uh, that they don't have any hope or even strength or desire anymore to cry out to Yahweh, to their God. But God persists with them. He keeps going. He keeps going with his rebellious people, with his despairing people. When they've forgotten him, he has not forgotten them. This is wonderful news, and that's how we sort of travel through the Samson story. Uh, just sort of briefly, a bit of a cook's tour through the first couple of chapters of Samson. The Lord appears, we saw it in the kids' talk, the Lord appears to a barren woman and promises her a son. And, you know, at this point, if you've read much of the Bible, that your ears will be pricking up miraculous births. <laughs> they mark all sorts of special things, and this isn't any exception to that. God says that this baby is going to be someone special. Uh, if you have chapter 13 open in front of you, you can see in verse, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 13 um, that this boy will be called a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. Now, if you want to look it up later, you can read about Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6, in your Bibles, Numbers chapter 6, uh, normally what this thing is uh, called a Nazarite, normally you would choose to be a Nazarite, you'd make a vow, okay? you'd, you'd make a promise, you'd volunteer to be a Nazarite for a short period of time it, to kind of separate yourself uh, to God, to set yourself apart in order to do something, in order to, for some special purpose. Okay? So it's, this is a, a, common, a relatively common thing. Um, uh, but the length of your vow, for, for the whole length of your vow, you'd keep a certain rule to show that you were set apart from everyone else. Uh, and you can read it through chapter 16. The same was with Samson. You weren't allowed to drink any alcohol. You, you couldn't cut your hair. You had to let it go long. Uh, and you had to completely avoid touching any dead bodies. So there are a number of rules that you'd have to keep while you were under this vow of being a Nazarite. Uh, until you sort of accomplished what you, ha- what you had. Uh, after the period, the period was over, you'd shave your hair, um, you had to burn it on an altar, and then you'd be released back to normal life. And Samson, we're told, well, you, maybe again you might be sort of picking up something a little unusual with Samson here, because he was a Nazarite, but he was a Nazarite from his birth. From before he was born, he was called to be a Nazarite. He was given his Nazarite-ship by God before he was born. And in verse 7 of chapter 13, we read, it's not going to be for just a limited period of time. It's going to be for his whole life. His whole life would be this being set apart for God to achieve what God had for him, which we read is to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Uh, But friends, God didn't just give him a job and send him off. God would himself empower Samson to do this thing that he had set him apart for. Uh, By the end of chapter 13, uh, we see that in action. The Spirit of the Lord stirs within this this young man, this strong man, Samson. And by the end of chapter 13, God gives him the incredible strength he's famous for. So these are some of the other judges on the screen. There's Manoah's wife, and uh, here's Samson wrestling a lion. The incredible strength that he's well known for. 
Well, with all of that in mind, this being set apart as a Nazarite, but different to the normal Nazarite system, he was set apart without his own choosing. God chose him. Uh, He was set apart for his life to save God's people Israel from the Philistines. With all that in mind, we jump over to chapter 16. And the, and the famous story of Samson and Delilah. So if you have your Bibles open at chapter 16, that'll help just to keep track of where we are in this story. Well, we read in verse 4 of chapter 16 uh, that sometime later, Samson falls in love with a woman. He fell in love with a woman. Not that unusual for a man to do, especially, we might think, for this man. Uh, The whole of Samson's story, if you've read through it, the whole of his story has revolved around his relationship with women. Uh, This is the third woman he's been involved with. At the start of chapter 14, uh, we read that there's this incredible thing at the start of chapter 14, this dark picture of Samson, really. He sees this woman and he wants her. He tells her parents to go get her. This is the language of possession, Uh, He says, I have seen this Philistine woman, now go get her for me as my wife. It's the language of a man who thinks women are simply there to please him, to be taken and given like property, and it's not surprising that this relationship that we read of, uh, it just ends in tragedy. The second woman Samson gets involved with is found in the start of chapter 16, the first three verses there. She's also a Philistine woman. There's this interesting pattern occurring for someone who was set apart by God in order to save God's people from the Philistines. Uh, the second woman he's involved with is also a Philistine woman. He's, she's uh, uh, let the reader understand it's nothing more than a business transaction. Again, he sees with his eyes. He sees with his eyes. He's led by his eyes. It's a business transaction and nothing more. But here in chapter 16, this is something different, something different. Here is a woman that Samson has fallen in love with. Not only that, uh, while the other women that he's involved with are nameless, here at last this woman is given a name, Delilah. We're told she's from the Valley of Sorek, which was kind of on the border of the Philistine and Israelite territory. Uh, we're not told where, where she comes, like what her nationality is, but given where she lives and given what happens next in the rest of the story, it's safe to assume that she was a Philistine herself, uh, part of the people that Samson was set apart to save the Israelites from. But Samson loves her in verse 4. He fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. But does she love him? Well, not really, as it turns out. She may love his strength. Uh, She might be flattered, perhaps, that such a man as Samson finds her attractive. But she doesn't love him. And when the chance came to give him up for a prophet, she grabbed it without a second thought. She grabs it without a second thought. Well, if you have your outlines as well, that'll help you as we go through. You can see sort of partway down there uh, the betrayal 
from verse 5. This betrayal, is, which has captured so many people's imaginations uh, throughout history, really, this uh, betrayal of Delilah on Samson. Uh, firstly, in verse 5, you see the bribe there. We saw it in the kids' video as well. Uh, the rulers of the Philistines come to Delilah. This is kind of high-level delegation, right? At this point, Samson has become a major national security threat. Okay, he's, uh, He is big news for the Philistines and they really want to get rid of him. They need to act. Uh, they can't beat him. They, can't, they know that they just can't beat him in his strength. So they need to sort of go in a more subtle, underhanded way. So... Uh, they go to Delilah, they want to lure him in, want her to lure Samson into giving up the secret of his great strength and they promise him this sum of uh, 1,100 shekels of silver, each of them. Um, this is a huge amount of money, okay? Next week we're going to look at the chapter 17 and there's a story about a Levite who was a priest, sort of like a priest, and he's, he's given 10 shekels for his whole year's wage. Okay, 10 shekels, a whole year's wage for this guy. Each of these Philistine rulers gives Samson 1,100 shekels. So it's a massive amount of money. Some, one estimate puts it at about $15 million okay, in, today's, uh, in today's money. And Delilah, without a second thought, without remorse, doesn't, there's no reluctance, she kind of grabs at it. <laughs> $15 million dangled in front of her face. And so this bizarre and weird, this baffling episode starts in, in this uh, chapter. Uh, if you sort of, you might have picked it up as we read through. It is just weird, isn't it? Um, three times, Delilah asks Samson how he can be subdued, how his, the secret of his strength can be found out. Uh, three times, Samson lies to her, and she just keeps asking and asking and asking, <laughs> Until there's a great line, he's sick to death of it. He's sick to death of her asking and asking, and the fourth time he tells her everything. It is quite, I mean, it is a confusing episode, isn't it? What is going on with Samson? You know? Why does he play along with this weird game? Can't he he see what Delilah's doing? Um, Well, there are a few hints in the story, I think, that keep, that tell us why he keeps going with this bizarre and ultimately this destructive game that Delilah's playing. Uh, There's a few hints in the story. First of all, he loved her. He loved her. Uh, And she sort of takes advantage of that in her last appeal. It's it's sort of this comic, this tragic and comic moment where she says, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? Is Delilah saying this to Samson when all the time she's trying to get him killed, you know, basically? How can you say you love me? He loved her. Uh, and he wanted to be loved by her in return. Uh, he wanted to tell her his secrets. I think these, there are these few hints in the story sort of bring this out. Uh, he wanted to tell her why he was so strong. He wanted to know that she loved him to know that he could trust her. The invulnerable Samson just wanted to be vulnerable with someone, with the woman he loved. So that's maybe a first hint to tell us why he just keeps playing at this game. 
Second one, though, Delilah is incredibly deceptive here. I mean, she is. Every time uh, she does it, the the Philistines are hidden away in the room. Uh, Samson doesn't know that they're there, okay, when she's uh, weaving his hair and all of that. She says, wake up, the Philistines are upon you. Uh, Each time he snaps his cords and he doesn't actually know the Philistines are there. He doesn't see any. They're hiding. And you can kind of imagine them hiding behind the couch and creeping away in terror after Samson gets up and (laughs) snaps his cords, um, not wanting to, you know, uh, face his wrath. But Samson, there's no indication that he knows about any of that. Uh, He thinks... Uh, there's a good chance that he thinks that Delilah's just playing a bit of a game with him, a bit of a, you know, kind of a lover's game, teasing him into letting on his secrets. And in the hope, in the hope, as we saw before, in the hope that this woman might actually love him for who he is, and not for his strength, he keeps playing along and teasing her back, you know, cajoling her, playing this dangerous game of cat and mouse, a couple of hints, I think, in this story as to why Samson goes on. But the third one, I think, is the most important one. Friends, it's sort of connected to those first two. And I think uh, as you read through, you get the, this comes out that this is really what's underlying what's fueling Samson here, why he keeps going. Each time he's asked for his secret, he says the same phrase. Uh, and it kind of comes across as just being full of yearning and meaning. When you've done this to me, he says, I will be as weak as any other man. I will be as weak as any other man. See, the the bait, the thing that sort of hooks him ultimately is deep down, he wants to be as other men. Uh, and you, the, you see that up to this point in the story, all the way through Samson's story, he has let go of every sign that he was a Nazarite, uh, every other sign other than his hair. God had set him apart to do his work, as we saw at the start. He, this guy had been chosen, he'd been set apart by God to save God's people from the Philistines. All along the way, God ha- uh, Samson has fought God's call on his life. He doesn't have any problems with drinking wine uh, or touching dead bodies. He, he knew he wasn't supposed to do either of those things. He does that in the story. Instead of driving out the Philistines, as that's what he was called to do, he's, sort of, he's gone to parties with them. He's married you know, into the Philistine culture. He never wanted to fight the Philistines. God's spirit drove him to it, as you read through. That's what sort of drives him to fight them. The only thing he's really enjoyed about being a Nazarite was his great strength, right? His incredible strength. But now even that, even that is a burden for him. And he wants to get rid of it. He's tired of being different. And when he's alone with the woman he loves, he just wants to be like other men. So she presses him, presses him day after day, and in his weariness, in the desperate hope that she'll still love him, he gives in and tells Delilah everything. And you know the rest of the story, right? It sort of plays out from here. 
Delilah, this time, she knows, right? She knows, she can just sense that he's told her the truth. So she coolly, you know, calls the Philistines again. They come with their money in their hands. Delilah puts Samson to sleep on her lap. She gently and carefully sort of gets the, uh, the Philistines to come and shave his head while he's sleeping. It's an intimate scene, but a horrible scene, isn't it? What a tragic and horrible scene of betrayal. Uh, when the job's done, she calls out, as, just like she does before, and Samson sort of stumbles up half awake, trying to shake himself free as he did the last times. But in verse 20 of chapter 16, we read, he didn't know that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines easily take him down. And kind of in this tragic irony, the man who was led by his eyes has his eyes put out. He's chained up. He's made to grind corn like an animal. And he's a prisoner of the Philistines. And there's no reason, really, I mean, when you think about Samson uh, called by God to do something amazing to save God's people from the Philistines, um, when you think about the way again and again he just refuses that on his life, there's no reason why the story shouldn't end at verse 21. Why the story shouldn't end with him, you know, this beaten animal grinding corn. Uh, Why God would have anything more to do with this guy. But as it uh, it turns out, uh, God doesn't work according to human reason. He works according to his grace and his plans in the world. So right at the end of this section, verse 22, you can read it there, there's this glimmer of hope, this glimpse of hope. Verse 22, the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. There's nothing magical about Samson's hair. Okay? There's no, it's not as if suddenly it sort of infused him with some magic power. It was, uh, it was, it was just a sign that he was still God's man. He was still God's man, set apart to do God's work. And so his hair growing back here is just this sort of tantalising little um, hint, right? Just this hint that's thrown in that God isn't finished with Samson yet, despite all his running away from what God had for him, despite him rejecting God, despite him rejecting God's call in his life, God is still there. He's still with Samson. And it's just what we read, right? As we didn't read this part, but uh, you may, you're probably familiar with the story. He's, Samson's brought out to perform like a circus animal in front of this huge, um, uh, this huge lot of uh, Philistine rulers, thousands of people assembled, in this huge temple to sacrifice to their god, Dagon. Uh, So he performs, and then he asks to lead against the pillars of the temple. And there, uh, at his lowest, at this sort of... He's just been brought down and down and down. At his lowest, he's an animal, treated like an animal. There, Samson does at last submit himself to God. Even here, though, if you've read it, he, doesn't, he still doesn't quite get it. He's still concerned about getting personal revenge 
more than saving God's people, Israel, uh, from their enemies. But, uh, but he isn't arrogant anymore. He doesn't rely on his own strength. He knows that his strength was only ever a gift. It was only ever a gift from God. So he prays just one more time. He prays for strength and God gives it. He collapses the whole temple, you know the story, and uh, the rulers of the Philistines are all um, killed at once, all the people crammed into it. It was sort of this impressive last act of faith in God from Samson. But it's, a, it's kind of an unsatisfying story at the end, isn't it, though? Because you're kind of left thinking, well, what could, Sam, what I, what could Samson have done <laughs> if only he had embraced this calling that God had set him apart for? Well, I mean, what a story, right? <laughs> An incredible story. And the story of Judges as a whole has spiralled down to this point. Uh, next week is sort of change gears, and it doesn't really get any better, so sorry to tell you that. <laughs> but come back next week and we'll, we'll look at the end of Judges. But the Judges themselves, the whole story has been spiralling down, focusing in on this one man. And Samson sort of becomes like a mirror for Israel itself, sort of Israel in a person. Uh, Israel went after foreign gods, so did Samson. Israel was set apart from the other nations so was Samson. He was set apart from other people. Both of them, Israel was called to do God's work in the world, to sort of take part in what God was doing in the world. Samson was the same. He's kind of Israel in a man, okay? But it doesn't just reflect Israel. He's also a mirror for us, friends. Um, God's people this side of Jesus. There's so many echoes here, aren't there, of our situation in Christ. We, we have been called by God before we were born, before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians. Uh, this calling sets us apart from the nations around us, from the pursuit of their idols. And just like Samson, we can so easily feel the burden of this calling, can't we? Uh, we can be led by our eyes, just like Samson was, driven by our heart's desire to be just like everyone else. We can be weary, can't we, of being God's holy people. We can find ourselves serving God reluctantly, without joy, not because we love him, but just because we have to, we feel, we really, you know, but all the time we wish we were somewhere else, anywhere, but anywhere else. But friends, while Samson sort of does reflect on our own hearts so powerfully, uh, he is not just a mirror for God's people. He's also, and even more importantly than that, like all the judges before him, he is a signpost. <laughs> He's a signpost pointing to the great and perfect saviour. And again, there's just so many parallels between Samson and Jesus, aren't there? Jesus also had a miraculous birth. Uh, he had an incredible task ahead of him, not just to save God's people from their political enemies, uh, but to save God's people from their core, their core problem, their sin, their rebellion against him, their brokenness. Uh, Jesus died a broken man, kind of like Samson, 
a broken man, beaten, mocked. But in his death, he brought a great victory. Uh, not just victory over sort of one lot of God, the enemies of God's people, victory forever over every power that sets itself up against the one true and living God. And while Samson, you see, while Samson's calling, while you just, you you know through reading uh, his story, his calling was a burden for him, he hated it. Jesus bore his calling faithfully to the end. He didn't stay dead under the rubble. After, it wasn't just kind of one impressive act and that was it, of course. The stone rolled away. Death could not hold him. So friends, for us, as we think about Samson and how we sort of relate to this story, um, there is actually an antidote to God's people being led by our eyes away from him, by our desire to just be like everyone else. Uh, There is an antidote to it, but it's not simply to... Just try harder to not do that, okay? It's not simply to try harder. It's not simply to, to say to ourselves, just stop being led by your eyes or whatever it is. Stop. The wonderful and life-giving alternative for us, friends, is not to not have our eyes set on something, but to fix our eyes, to fix our eyes on someone else, on the perfect Saviour, Jesus That's what will fuel your service of God. That's what will keep it fresh and keen. That's what will encourage you when you grow weary of God's calling on your life. I just want to finish with this great passage from Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. The writer uh, to the Hebrews writes this... So let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, this morning, consider him. Fix your eyes on him. Have your vision so filled with him that the idols and distractions of the Philistines, the temptations of the world, They're just exposed for what they are next to your glorious Lord who has died for you and who loves you. And they will lose their power over you. Let's pray. Uh, Let's pray together, friends. Let's pray. Father, we do um, thank you for your word. We do know that we are so much like Samson in so many ways. Uh, We thank you for the incredible reality that you have called us and chosen us even before the world was made, we read in Paul. Uh, But Father, like Samson, we can be led by our eyes away from you, from finding our hope and our peace and our sufficiency in you. 
Lord, teach us, we pray, to fix our eyes, not on ourselves, not on our efforts, but on the one who Samson was always pointing towards, the perfect saviour of, uh, of your people, the wonderful risen Lord who has defeated everything that is evil, who has defeated all sin and death, and who has risen again. Lord, teach us every day to fix our eyes on him so that we will not grow weary or lose hearts. We pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.